Well, I've really been looking forward to celebrating Easter with all of you, and I am thrilled to death that you are here. If, um, if there's someone here today who is a guest with us, we're especially delighted that you're here. And I want you to know that we've been in a series since last August where we've been going through the books of the Bible book by book, and today we happen to be in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you have a tablet or a smartphone or something like that where you can look up the Scripture, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. We're going to look at some verses there in just a few moments. We are a people of hope. We hope because life is impossible without it. We make our wish lists and our bucket lists in hope that such dreams will eventually come true. We make a wish and we blow out the candles. With nearly every Disney movie, you'll see at the beginning a picture of Cinderella's castle, and you'll hear a few notes of the song, When We Wish Upon Our Star, Our Dreams Come True. We grab a turkey wishbone before the tryptophan kicks in, and we pull as we make a wish. I'm pretty sure no wish of mine has ever come true because I ended up with the long side of a poor turkey's wishbone, but it doesn't keep me from trying. Hope, hope gets us through the dark moments of life. Someone wise put it this way, when things are bad, we take comfort in the thought that they could always be worse. And when they are worse, we find hope in the thought that things are so bad they have to get better. It has been said that man can live 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but for only one second without hope. Now, the grand thing about the book of Hebrews is it's a book of hope. In chapter 10, verse 23, this is what we read, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Hold on to hope with no sway. It's likely that this marvelous book began as a letter written about 65 AD to the Jewish Christians who were suffering persecution under the Roman emperor Nero. The letter was written to give them hope in the midst of their pain and suffering. It was to give them encouragement on their dark days. But the letter wasn't just for the Jewish Christians of the first century. The letter of Hebrews is for us today, and it will do the same for us. It will give us hope. Now, in all my ministry years, folks, this is the first time I have ever preached out of the book of Hebrews on Easter Sunday. And, and when I started working on, on this sermon, I've got, I began to wonder, why have I never preached from this book before? It just breathes hope. But now, I want you to remember this. Not all hope is the same. It's one thing to hope for something. It's quite another to hope in someone. When you hope for something, you're expecting a certain outcome. I hope I get a new car. I hope I get an A on the test. I hope my interview lands me this job. I hope the medical tests reveal good news. But you see, eventually, ultimately, everything we hope for in this life will disappoint us. Eventually, everything will wear out, break down, freeze up, fall apart, or just melt away. Is there anything that is simply once and for all? Well, take a look at what the writer of Hebrews expresses in chapter 9, verse 26. But he, that is Jesus, 
has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The whole book of Hebrews, folks, speaks of the superiority of Christ and his sacrifice. What Jesus accomplished is unique in all of history. He has no peers since or before. The sacrifices at the temple could never take away sin. They weren't intended to take away sin. All the lambs and the bulls that were offered were simply an object lesson of the fact that God would one day in the city of Jerusalem at the cross of Calvary through the body of his son pay the ultimate price. And because of the sacrifice he made, he has guaranteed to us hope once and for all. You see, it's not about hoping for something. It's about hoping in someone, Jesus Christ. If, if your hope is only for this life, that hope will break your heart. I've heard folks say things like this. I had hoped that my marriage would last. I had hoped that I would retire from this job. I had hoped that the treatments would restore my health. You see, if your hope is only for life in this world, It'll break your heart. But lasting hope, lasting hope is an outgrowth of our faith. George Isle said, hope is faith holding out its hand in the dark. John Ortberg wrote, hope is faith waiting for tomorrow. Now, there is a great story in the Old Testament I want to talk about. There's a lot of great stories in the Old Testament, but th this one I want to talk about this morning comes from 1 Samuel, and it predates the birth of Christ about 1,100 years. It is a story about heartbreak, about hopelessness, and a lesson on waiting in faith for tomorrow. So to understand a little bit about this story, we, we got to go back and we kind of got to refresh our memories about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if, if you've ever watched Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're, you're a step ahead. Okay, because you got a mental image in your mind of what the ark is. The ark was this beautiful, ornate, golden box um, that that contained a bowl of manna. It contained Aaron's rod, and it also contained the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And it was carried on the on the poles that you see sticking out from it. There, uh, it also uh, rested in the Holy of Holies. Now, this was a room inside the temple. It was separated from everything else by this great thick curtain, and the Holy of Holies represented the very courts of heaven themselves. And the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies represented the very presence of God among his people. Now, on top was this lid carved out of one solid piece of gold, and carved on top of the lid were two cherubim, their wings about to touch in the very center. Wherever the Israelites went, 
the Ark of the Covenant preceded them when they moved because it represented the presence of God. And if you're going to follow God, you want God to lead. And so they followed the Ark. Now, at the time of our story, the, the Israelites are under the oppressive thumb of the Philistines. Whenever you read about the Philistines in the Scriptures, you ought to just under your breath kind of boo. Because the, the Philistines are always the bad guys. They, they are always the ones who are inflicting pain and suffering on the Israelites, and they always stand in contrast to everything that is godly. And so some Hebrew got the brainy idea that they ought to attack the Philistines to throw off this yoke of captivity and slavery, and, and they could do that if they went into battle. And so they gathered the troops, and they went into battle, and they got soundly defeated. And they limp home. And they get back to, to the land of Israel, and, and they are just demoralized. Why didn't we win? And, and then it was as if a light bulb went off, and you could see somebody go, ah, how dumb can we be? We forgot the ark. God didn't go with us into battle. If we'd have taken the ark into battle, we'd have come home in victory. So what they decided to do was go back into battle. This time they would take the ark and lead into the battle with the ark. The problem was nobody, nobody ever stopped to pray and see if this is what God wanted them to do. They just grabbed the ark and headed back against the Philistines as if the ark was some kind of good luck charm. Folks, I got to tell you, it's never wise to treat the presence of God as a good luck charm. The second battle was devastating. Seven times more Israelites died in the second battle than the first. God was not pleased. The Israelites went into that battle with the Ark of the Covenant out front, two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, leading the way, and they were, they were wretched cutthroat, greedy swindlers. And God was not with them. They had not prayed. And when the battle was over, Israelites had died. Hophni and Phinehas had died. And the worst thing imaginable, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken captive by the Philistines. When Eli, who was the father of Hophni and Phinehas, heard that his sons had died in battle, he was heartbroken. But when he heard that the Ark had been stolen and taken captive, he died. Mrs. Phinehas was great with child, and when she heard that her husband had died in battle and that her father-in-law had subsequently died, she was heartbroken. But when she learned that the ark had been taken captive, she went into premature labor and she did not survive. And with her dying breath, she named the boy that had been born Ichabod. Now, don't miss the hopelessness in this moment. The Hebrew word Chabad, is a beautiful word. It means joy and glory and all these wonderful things. But when you put an I in front of Chabad, it negates it. It's just like how we oftentimes in the English language use the letter A. The word theist means a believer in God. You put an A in front of it and it becomes atheist, someone who does not believe in God. Chabad, glory. Ichabod, the joy is gone. The glory has departed. All hope has died. God has left us. Have you ever been there? 
Tragedy strikes, the unbelievable happens, your dreams melt away, your life falls apart, and God goes missing in your life. He's nowhere to be found. It seems as if God has abandoned you, and you have this overwhelming sense of hopelessness. You lose your job. You discover that your child is deep into drugs. Your spouse wants out of the marriage. You bury the person you love most in life, and you walk away from the grave thinking, I cannot face tomorrow alone. Your life has suddenly become Ichabod. The joy is gone. The glory has departed. You are hopeless. God is nowhere to be found. It was just like that one Friday in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. A rushed illegal trial, false witnesses, and about nine o'clock in the morning, three men struggled to make their way up a hill called Golgotha. Two are criminals the other one is God in the flesh. His disciples have fled in defeat and terror. Only John stands at the foot of the cross. Surely, they all thought, surely this can't be happening. After three years with them, we were sure Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. Maybe yet. God would answer their call. Maybe yet this one who had healed the sick and even raised the dead would slip the grip of the nails and come away from the cross victorious. But it was not to be. And at the very time that Jesus hung on the cross, the Ark of the Covenant rested behind the great curtain in the temple while sacrificial lambs were being offered in the courtyard. Around noon, the skies grew black and stormy like a boiling cauldron with a toxic brew. There was an anxious feeling in the wind. The sun hit its light, and then it happened. At three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, It is finished! And God died. Suddenly it became an Ichabod day. The joy was gone. The glory had departed. All was lost. The Savior had not been saved. Even heaven is furious. At the very moment of his death, the earth began to quake. Rocks split. And then the unthinkable happened. The great curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. The Ark of the Covenant was exposed as if to say, once and for all, God is gone. But the story was far from over, folks. In the darkness of that moment was the beginning of the dawn of hope. Once and for all, once and for all, Christ alone would change our destiny. Christ alone would change everything. You know, the Israelites thought God was gone. God hadn't left them. And as you can see, the Ark of the Covenant did come back. But at the time of the story, they thought everything was hopeless. So let's go back to the story. I want to finish the story so you know how it all, all, all ends. You know, the Israelites are mourning the loss of the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and the, and the mourning 
God's leaving them, so they thought. The Philistines on the other side, man, they are jubilant. They've won two battles, and in the second battle, they capture the God of the Israelites. And so they go home in a celebration mood. They go home singing, my God's bigger than your God, and these kinds of things that are happening. And they put, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. Now, Dagon was one of the principal gods of the Philistines, and his look was that of half man and half fish. He was kind of a, a male mermaid kind of looking thing, not, not a very attractive kind of an idol, but they were giving him the credit for the victory. And so they have this big celebration in the temple of Dagon, and they leave and they close up the temple, and they come back the next morning, and lo and behold, Dagon has fallen on his fish face and is down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're a Philistine, this is not good news, that your God is now worshiping what it appears to be the God of the Israelites, and so they prop him up, they dust him off, and they celebrate a little less jubilant this time, and they close the temple up, they go home, and the next day they come back, and lo and behold, again, the statue of Dagon is on its face, only this time the hands and the head have been severed, and they are lying on the threshold of the temple. Now, now the Philistines are scared. What are we going to do with this Ark of the Covenant? And they begin to cart it from city to city among the Philistines, and everywhere the Ark of the Covenant goes, there is this plague that follows. It is a plague where the people get tumors, and there is death that follows, and it's spread by rodents, which means that most scholars today believe it was something equivalent to the bubonic plague that uh, struck so many during history. And so every time the, the, the Philistines saw the Ark coming, they were scared to death. And you say, well, why all that detail? Because the Philistines stood against everything that God stood for. They were a mighty power. They were oppressing God's people. They had Iron Age technology at their disposal, but they were powerless to defeat some of the smallest of God's creation. The mice spread the disease. Finally, the Philistines said, we got to get rid of the ark. So they put it on a brand new cart. They put a gift of gold with it, and they sent a, 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 an ox, a, a pair of oxen to take it back into the camp of Israel. And you can just see it as it goes into the land of Israel, that there is great rejoicing in the land, that the ark had come home. God had returned to his people. Now, this is one of those incredible God stories that we find throughout the Bible. There are lots of these God stories throughout the Bible, and God used these various stories to point to the greatest story that would come, that of the cross and of the empty tomb. And these stories happen over and over again to remind us of God's plan from the beginning. And these God stories are dramas that are always played out in three acts. Act number one is dark. It's a picture of defeat and disappointment. It seems as if God loses, just like the battle to the Philistines and the capture of the ark. Day number one, act number one, dark. Act two is a day of anxious waiting and hidden combat. The Hebrew people wait anxiously. They hoped and they prayed that the ark would come home. They didn't know what was going to happen. But what they could not see was that God was working behind the scenes to defeat the enemy. God's plan was coming together. They just couldn't see it. So while they were disappointed, God was very much at work defeating the enemy. Act number three, it's a 180 degree turn. 
In the third act, the Philistines are devastated. The ark comes home. The time of captivity is over. The Israelites have been set free. Chabad is back. The glory has returned. The joy has returned. The hope has returned. God has come back to his people. Hope is alive. You say, well, what does that have to do with Easterns? What does that have to do with my life? (laughs) Can I give you just three real quick lessons to remember? this morning. Here's the first one. Life here in this world holds no promises. Life here holds no promises. Now, folks, I love life in this world. It's it's the only life I can relate to, and so I enjoy every day that I can get up and take a breath, and, and I can be with my family, and I can see God's marvelous creation. When we talk about don't love the world, that's not what we're talking about. You love your family with all your heart. You love what God has done for you with all of your heart. You love God with all of your heart. When we talk about not loving the world, we're talking about the philosophical ideologies that stand in contrast or opposed to God. When we talk about not loving the world, we're talking about not loving the things of this world as if accumulating all the things of this world to us is some going to help make us happy. Remember, if our hope is only for this life, it'll break our hearts. Life here holds no promises. Number two, don't give up through the disappointments. It is so tempting when bad things happen to give up and allow our disappointment to overshadow our hope. David Winter, one time president of Westmont College, was looking forward to retirement. But just a short time before the end of that school year when he was going to retire, he was stricken with a disease that within three weeks had robbed him of his eyesight. On the day of graduation, he had to hold on to the arm of a a guide to get him up onto the graduation platform so he could address the graduates. And when he got to the podium, this is what he said. Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. When you go into the darkness of your disappointments, don't you let it overshadow your hope. Remember what God has shown you in the light. Don't give up up. Here's the third thing. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in the God of all hope. This last week, uh, as I was on my way back from the Maritime Provinces in Canada, my my arrival home was delayed by about 18 uh, hours. I missed two, not one connecting flight. I missed two connecting flights. One was the result of bad weather, one was the result of some mechanical issues, and I was frustrated. I was upset. I still am frustrated about the whole thing that happened this week. (laughs) They can invite you to fly the friendly skies, but I'm not united with that particular theme, all right, if you catch my drift. (laughs) I I learned a lesson. I, I think God is trying to teach me something this week, and here's what I learned. I really like being in control. (laughs) I I am not good when I can't do something about an issue, when I can't fix something, when I can't be the one that's pulling the strings to control my destiny. I like being in control. I think God was trying to remind me, you aren't in control. I suspect I'm not the only one in the room who struggles with the same concerns. You see, when I... When I let my pride in my abilities to control my life get in the way, everything falls apart. 
Pride is so destructive. Pride will be my downfall. Pride will be your downfall. It was the pride of the Philistines that was their downfall. Pride will mess up everything. It'll mess up your relationships. It'll, it'll create stress. Pride will be your downfall. Henry and Henrietta lived a pretty ordinary life until one day Henrietta got the news that she was receiving unexpectedly a huge inheritance. Man, did everything change. They went out and bought a brand new big house and, and they moved into the house and, and Henrietta's pride, well, it, she just couldn't resist the opportunity. And so she said, Henry, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but if it weren't for my inheritance, this house wouldn't be here. Henry looked down and kind of shuffled his feet and didn't say anything. Two days later, a van pulled up with new furniture. Old furniture went out, all brand new furniture in the house. And she, and she just, she said, Henry, she said, I don't want to make you feel bad. But she said, if it weren't for my inheritance, none of this furniture would be here. Henry just sort of nodded. Two days later, a brand new expensive car was delivered to their driveway. And Henrietta was at it again. She said, you know, Henry, I, I don't want to make you feel bad, but if it weren't for my inheritance, none of this, this car wouldn't be here. This time, Henry spoke. He looked Henrietta in the eye and he said, you know, Henrietta, I don't want to make you feel bad, but if it wasn't for your inheritance, I wouldn't be here either. <laughs> Pride will always be our downfall. It's when we are prideful that we think we're in control or that we don't need help or that we can handle our own problems. Or worst of all, I don't need a Savior because I'm just as good as the next person. Pride says I don't need somebody to pay my debt of sin. Oh, but we do. We do need a Savior, and only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is good enough. So put your trust in the one who's good enough, because it's not you, and it's not me. And you're saying, well, how do I know that God will come through? After all, I've got prayers that have gone unanswered. The world is in a mess and getting worse, and I don't see God involved in any of it. It seems like every time we turn around, the people that we know and love, and love are struggling with heartache and heartbreak, and where is God in the midst of that? How do I know that God is worthy of my trust and my hope? Oh, friends, that's why we celebrate Easter. Easter is the ultimate God story, played out in three acts, remember? Act number one. It seemed like all the forces of evil were victorious. It was an Ichabod day. The glory had departed. All hope was gone when Jesus died. That was the day of darkness. Act 2. The disciples were lost. They had no answers. They could not see beyond the moment. But what the disciples could not see, what the world at that moment could not see, was that God was very much at work against the forces of evil in spiritual realms. Day 2 was a day of disappointment. Act three, life does a 180. You see, folks, the third day is always God's day. It is the day when the unbelievable becomes believable. It is the day when the stone is rolled back and death is defeated and all of creation rejoices at what only God can do. Day three was the day of deliverance. 
Even ancient tombs in and around Jerusalem of the righteous people broke open during the death of Christ and in the resurrection, and they came into the city of Jerusalem. Only Matthew records that, and only Matthew devotes one verse to that. Now, let me ask you, if half of Rose Hill or Valhalla or Clear, Clear Creek Cemetery simply emptied out and showed up for worship services this morning, you think it'd make a difference in how we worshiped? Do you think that news would spread like wildfire? You bet. But I'm here to tell you, it wasn't the big news. It wasn't that there was an empty cemetery. It was that there was a single empty tomb that made the headlines. Jesus is alive. He still is. And that's why he's worthy of your trust. That's why you can stop hoping for something and start hoping in someone, Jesus. Only our risen Savior gives hope. <laughs> While interviewing a prospective college student, the admissions advisor asked the student, if you could have a conversation with one person, living or dead, who would it be? And the college student said, I'd take the living one. Good choice. <laughs> Listen carefully. If you could follow one person, living or dead, who would it be? Always pick the living one. And there's only one, Jesus Christ. You see, life here is lived out in act two. We're caught somewhere between the day of darkness and the day of deliverance. We're living through the disappointments. The realists among us say it's all a fairy tale. They say that Christianity is a crutch. I have a friend who says Christianity isn't a crutch, it's a stretcher. And he's right. Because on the tough days, on the disappointing days, Jesus has to carry us through. Is an empty tomb really all that important? Well, you can answer that. What if? What if it was discovered tomorrow that the missing Malaysian Flight 370 had landed safely in some remote place and all 239 people were alive? Imagine the joy their families would experience. Or, or what if one of those listed missing in the tragic mudslide in Seattle, Washington just showed up alive at the next family dinner? That story would go viral in a heartbeat. Or what if tomorrow it was discovered that all of the missing on that Korean ferry were found alive in an air pocket inside that ship? Imagine how deep sorrow would suddenly give way to incredible joy. What if? What if someone really could come back from the dead? <laughs> he did. That's exactly what happened on that Sunday morning in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. You see, you see, an empty tomb changes everything, everything. Hope lives because Jesus Christ lives once and for all.